0: Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, all the readings for this weekend are in different ways about the law. We Americans, you know, have a rather ambiguous relationship to the law. On the one hand, we are a freedom-loving nation. Don't tread on me. Don't tell me what to do. I have the right, as Thomas Jefferson said, to pursue happiness as I see fit. There's something in us that balks at the law. On the other hand, let's face it, we're a very litigious society. Precisely because we're preoccupied with our rights, lawyers are thick on the ground in the American culture. So many of our founding fathers were men of the law, and the two great Protestant founders, Martin Luther and John Calvin, who have profoundly influenced our own cultural structure, well, they were law students in their early careers. So we hate the law, and we love the law. We balk at the law, and we need the law. We have a kind of love-hate relationship with it, and probably to be honest, this makes us like most people up and down the ages. So what does the Bible say about the law? Listen to a passage from our first reading from Deuteronomy. Moses speaks to the people. Now, Israel, hear the statutes and decrees which I am teaching you to observe. Observe them carefully, for thus you will give evidence of your wisdom and intelligence to the nations. Friends, whenever we reverence something... We surround it with laws so as to protect it. Think for a second of the number of laws that hem in and define the game of baseball. Would anyone who really loves baseball ever be content with an anything-goes approach to the game? Hey, kids, just go out in the field and do whatever you want. Just play any way you want. No, no, if you love the game of baseball... You're very interested in the rules that define it, because they preserve its integrity, which is just a fancy way of saying they preserve the fun of baseball. Or think just for a moment of the rule book that governs the game of golf. There are hundreds of laws covering every aspect of the game, and it's precisely because the game of golf is so complex that it requires All these rules. More to it, those who love the game of golf tend to love the rules. They carry the rule book with them. They insist that the rules be followed. They get rather annoyed if you start playing fast and loose with the rules. The laws protect the integrity of the game, which real golfers love. So God gives us laws. Why? To protect the integrity of the moral and spiritual life because we recognize it as something good, beautiful, full of integrity. We want to protect it. Listen now in our second reading what the Apostle James says Humbly welcome the word that's been planted in you and is able to save your souls. Isn't that good? The Word of God is a law. It's a way of ordering your life. Its purpose is to protect this great good of moral excellence. So as to make your life more joyful, more perfect, more compelling and beautiful. Just as you wouldn't tell a kid to go out on the golf course and just horse around. No, no, you'd teach them You'd shape him according to the laws of golf. Just as you'd never think of sending a kid out in the baseball field and say, horse around, do whatever you want, play the game any old way. Well, no. You'd lure him into the beauty and structure and order and harmony of baseball. So in the moral life. So in the spiritual life. We love the laws that God has given us. They protect and enhance the integrity of that life. Take one more step. James tells us the Word of God must be planted in us. You know, a great golfer doesn't need to consult the rule book all the time because the laws of golf are not extrinsic to him. They have become part of him. They're intrinsic to his life. They inform the way he plays. A good baseball player doesn't need the laws imposed upon him extrinsically. No, no. They become flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. So in a very similar way, saints have the law of God planted in them. Not experienced as an external imposition. Something outside their freedom. No. The law of God comes up from the very roots of their being because now the law has been planted in them. It's part of their lives. That's why, for example, throughout the Bible, we find this. O oh Lord, write your law... Not on tablets of stone, but on the fleshy tablets of our hearts. You see what that's saying? We don't want the law to be extrinsic to us, we want it to be in our hearts, written in our very being. You know, one way to look at a lot of the contemporary culture is through this lens. A lot of the contemporary culture, sadly, in regard to the moral life and the spiritual life, is precisely that anything-goes attitude. You define your life. You follow your whim, follow your bliss, do what you want. Friends, would we accept that logic in any other area of life that we take seriously, whether it's baseball or golf or violin playing or anything else? We'd never accept that silly logic. No, we accept the logic of the law. And so the Bible sings its praises. Okay, so far, so good. The law is wonderful, God-given. But then we read the Gospel, and we find Jesus witnessing to the shadow side of the law. It's corruption, the negativity that law seems to carry with it, namely a kind of fussiness, a legalism, a missing of the forest for the trees, a confusion of the essential and the peripheral. Jesus, as he often does, rails against the scribes and Pharisees with their fussy preoccupation with all the details of the Jewish law they complain that Jesus and his disciples don't follow every jot and tittle of the law and Jesus calls them hypocrites who know how to pay lip service to God but whose hearts are far from the Lord well what gives here how do we make this distinction this confusion about the law seems to be built almost into the process. We love rules. We love laws, as we've seen. But when the rules that govern a game get too complicated, too detailed, too thick, they undermine the very game they're designed to protect. You know, when I was a kid, my brother and I and our friends would, would gather in the backyard, and we would make up all sorts of games— now, something would tell you when kids make up a game, there wouldn't be a lot of rules. On the contrary. Our games were thick with rules because often the the game had to conform to the contours of our backyard. So we had things like if the ball goes to the left of that tree, something will happen. If the ball hits that branch, it's, it's uh, foul. If the ball goes over that fence, then the game's got to... You know, after a while, there were so many rules, so many laws, that you needed four referees and a lawyer to figure out how to play the game. So it happens sometimes. Laws get too thick. Think, for example, of a medieval knight with his suit of armor. It's meant to protect him. But if that suit becomes too heavy too cumbersome. He can't fight effectively, and in fact, it makes him more vulnerable. The very thing that's meant to protect him threatens him. And so it can happen with laws that become too fussy, too thick. They actually undermine the very form of life they're meant to defend. You know, another serious problem with the multiplicity of laws is it can become very difficult to distinguish between essential laws and customs and practices that are really relative and secondary. You know what I'm saying? There's the heart of the law, the really central, serious, essential elements, and then there are relatively peripheral laws. Let me give you an example. Not long ago, I was watching an old tape, an old film, of Pius XII, the great pope of the 40s and 50s. It showed him being carried into the Vatican on his sedia Gestatoria, you know, that elevated seat that was carried by several people. As he blessed the crowd, papal chamberlains waved ostrich feathers at him. Well, I looked at that tape and, and found it kind of amusing. You know, at one time, all those touches that came from the court ceremonial of Europe were ways of of honoring the Pope and so on. But, you know, beginning with Paul VI, very much confirmed by John Paul II, and now continued by Benedict XVI, a lot of that court ceremonial has fallen away. The more modern popes determined that actually these things that were customs and practices honoring the Pope were really getting in the way of the Pope's essential office. They were a block between the Pope and the people he wanted to serve. And so the church has allowed them to fall away. Friends, in any religious system, so it goes. Often it becomes difficult to distinguish between the truly essential matters and things that are relatively peripheral. And this, I think, is what Jesus is often getting at in his critique of the law. This is not antinomianism, this is not indifference to the law. No, no, it's an act of clarification. So, what is the heart of the law? Jesus, you know, is often asked that question in the course of the Gospels. What does he say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is God alone. He quotes the great Shema from the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. And therefore, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, and love your neighbors yourself. Friends, you want to know what the essence of the law is, which determines and forms and protects the great moral and spiritual life? That's it. That's it. Is it important from time to time to pause and to stare at that central law? And then to use that law as a criterion by which we determine the legitimacy and importance of the many other customs and laws that surround it. We love the law, but we don't allow the law to stifle the essence of the spiritual life. I think when we see that relationship, we're quite close to what Jesus wants us to see. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.